So with that, please turn to John's uh, first epistle, 1 John. And in your bulletin it says, uh, I'll be reading 1 John 1 uh, by itself, but I want to go into verse uh, chapter 2 as well and consider uh, the first two verses there. So with that, please hear the reading of God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In this passage here, we hear of this this fellowship that John invites us into. This fellowship that we would have with him and with the apostles Indeed, with the body of Christ, for those who are in Christ, but even more so with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I would just begin by saying, is that something that you value? I had to consider that for myself as I considered this text. When you think of being a Christian, what is it that you think of first and foremost? That your sins are forgiven, which is a glorious thing? That you have joy, which is a glorious thing, but... Have you ever considered the fact that you get to have fellowship with the Father and the Son through Jesus Christ? This was brought home to me over the last couple of years as I have three good friends, including my wife, who I've known for almost 50 years now. And it's a wonderful thing to be with these people. They know my ins and outs. They know my frailties. They know my fears. They know my joys. They know what might hurt me. They might know what might encourage me. And I even had the privilege of having a trip with one of these people. Actually, the other two people besides my wife were my two best men for my wedding. I had two best men. I know it's different. And we went on a short trip, a three-day trip to Florida a year ago. And it was just this wonderful time of this great unity. Not without sin. We had our disagreements. But this great joy of someone who knew me and knew me well and who we could interact together. And so what he's saying here, what John is saying here, is that he's sharing these things with us that we might have this fellowship with the Father and the Son through Jesus Christ. This, this, and I've, I've titled this a fellowship of grace. And fellowship, as you know, the word is koinonia, a close association involving mutual interest and sharing. 
association, communion, fellowship, close relationship, a very intimate relationship. And that's what I want us to consider in this passage this morning, just three aspects of this, this, this uh, fellowship. First, the fellowship is a, fe- a fellowship of reality. It's a fellowship of reality. Second, it's a fellowship of light or holiness. It's a fellowship of light or holiness. And finally, this fellowship is one of great cost. This fellowship is one of great cost. And so first, a fellowship of reality in verses 1, 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. On February 12, 1972, I was not yet a Christian. I was a month away from my 15th birthday. I went to uh, what would be my, my wife's high school, Duval High School. Now, that would have been a run-of-the-mill day, except that inside the high school were the Los Angeles Lakers. They had uh, already set the NBA record, which still stands for th- 33 consecutive wins. And at that point in my life, as an unbeliever, my idol were, was basketball, and in particularly a man named Jerry West. If you've ever seen the NBA playoffs, it's his Silhouette that's inside the emblem for the lost for the uh, NBA, and I went there with great anticipation. Uh, my father went with me. He brought his camera. All I wanted was to meet him and get his autograph. And uh, inside the gym, that's exactly what I did. I shook his hand. He gave me his autograph. And then my father says, "Hey, see if you can get a picture with him." I said, "I don't know." He says, "Ask him." So I asked him. He said, "Sure. Can we just wait till we get outside?" And so we went outside. I forgot my brother was with me as well. My brother stood on one side, I stood on the other side, and I had this picture on my dresser until I got married. It was time enough. Uh, my wife's picture should be on my dresser, but I had a five-by-seven color picture of myself and my brother and Jerry West. He was very kind. There's fond memories. And um, it still is embedded in my memory to this day. Now, what I've just done is I've given witness to Jerry West. It was a providential meeting, something that God had ordained, but only because of my interest. There was no great significance to it, except I can tell you the story today. But the Apostle John had a greater and higher calling to be a witness. He was to be a witness to the Son of God incarnate. He was to be one who would have a special uh, camaraderie with the, uh, with, with the Lord in order that he might proclaim him in his special calling as an apostle. The Apostle John did not take this upon himself. He was called by the Lord himself. We see this in his own gospel in John 15, 26 to 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He had an official calling, an official duty. Our brother Dave and Paul are ordained in the PCA. They have an official calling. I am a ruling elder ordained. I am licensed. I have an official calling. But none of us are apostles. 
God in his providence had set apart these special men to be witnesses of his right from the beginning. We see this all throughout John's writings. As we just saw, he gives testimony to all these things that he saw and heard and touched. This is no light opening. It's almost like you could almost touch Jerry West from my explanation in some sense, that we are to have a greater impact upon our souls of the reality of our hope. That John was not just espousing his own ideas, but for three years he was there in and out with Jesus, seeing all these things that were unique, hearing things that were unique, even leaning against Jesus in a unique way at the supper. And that was his calling to, to be a witness, not just for his generation, but until, the, until Christ returns in the scriptures to be a faithful witness of these things. When we have in our hands John's gospel in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, we have the fulfillment and part of this calling that he had. That for all times for the church, these would be witnesses for us to uh, embrace deeply as to the reality of our hope. John saw many, many things as one of the twelve. Many miracles. He Even in his own gospel, we see him in John 5, as he see the healing of the invalid. Or John 9, the man who was born blind from birth. He was there. He saw this. Or John 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Or his own experience of the resurrected Christ. All these things are part of what he's saying here. All these experiences ordained by God for him to know and also to share with others. But John was also in an inner circle of sorts with his brother James and the apostle Peter. On three or four occasions, they had very unique situations that they were privy to, particularly the transfiguration. When they were, they were led up the mountain by Jesus and they saw Jesus, they heard the voice from from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. A very, very unique situation. And what's an interesting side note at this point is that when they were coming down, Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anybody about this until the resurrection. That he was to imbibe what he had seen, but not to share it with others until it was time. Now, again, I don't know what it's been like for you, but maybe you've had certain experiences where you haven't had the ability to talk to maybe your wife or your, your husband or somebody close to you. You've experienced something. You've had to digest it more. And I think that's what was going on there. Jesus wanted them to take it in, to kind of store it in the back of their mind until the time when it was so obvious what this meant. And so John has these incredible experiences that are for us. So that when we come to this book, when we come to his other writings, and really when we come to all scripture, there's a unique perspective here that we're to heed and take in. This is for us. I have a friend who says, you know, I just wish that God would do a miracle for me somewhere. That he thinks that would encourage his faith. But God in his wisdom says, this is sufficient for you. This is the Lord Jesus that I want you to look to. He has done all these miracles. Go back and those are all for you as a believer. To, faith, to put your faith in and to trust in, to have great assurance of his great power. We see this even in John's writing in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1. John says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave 
him to show his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That this is all part of his experience, and it was part of his life. It was part of his unique calling as an apostle. And so these are for us, too. This is one demonstration of how important the word of God is to shape our thinking and our affections. To be reminded that Jesus is Lord of Lord. He is King of Kings. And he's at the right hand right now as we gather. Seated at the right hand of the Father. That he is ruling. No matter what comes our way, he is ruling. And if we're in Christ, it's all for good. For his glory. And for our good. This experience of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is is also observed in Peter, as Peter was there too, in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, as he demonstrates his message is not of his own. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he had received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That all of this is to strengthen our faith. This is the food for our souls, for the sureness of of our hope, until that hope becomes sight. All of this is to build us up in our holy faith, so that our faith is almost sight. Not sight, but almost sight, that our faith is to move to the place where It is almost sight. And so in this life, our faith is strengthened more and more as we go on through the Christian life. That is why the means of grace are so important. That we have a greater and greater sense of the reality of the hope that we have until we receive it in glory. And so we have a very firm foundation for our faith, not just in John, but of course throughout the scriptures. But this is what John has for us here, that as he brings these things in this letter that is so important for us to know. This is, this is reality. John would be a liar if he did not testify to these things, and he would be a liar if he chose other things to speak about. But he is a faithful witness, and he tells these things to us that are pertinent us, for us today as they were in his day, and will be so until our Lord returns. Always a sure, firm foundation. So this fellowship that he speaks of comes out of this reality, out of this reality pointing to Christ and leading us to Christ. But second, it's a fellowship of light, a fellowship of light or holiness. We see this in verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, he is in the, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, 
and his word is not in us. There is a a theme all throughout scripture of light and darkness, life and death, truth and falsehood or lies, these two polar opposites of each other. And the light and the life and the truth are all tied up together in Christ. And darkness and death and falsehood is all tied up in the lies of the evil one, in the fall of man. There's a great darkness over the whole world that only Christ enlightens and changes in anyone's soul. John, by his message, is trying to uh, display that light for us that we might see clearly the differentiation here. He is uncovering the sin of hypocrisy across the board. If one says that he knows Christ and yet walks in a way that's contrary, he's a liar. He's inconsistent. There's something wrong. The effects of God's saving influence on someone is a change in their nature. It is a change that demonstrates it in a different way of life. And to say otherwise would be to to be a lie. He comes into the world and as light he exposes our sins by his spirit. But at the same time he, he reminds us of what Christ has done on behalf of our sins. That he is the propitiation for our sins. And so for somebody to say I have no sin or I walk with Christ when I'm walking in sin in a stubborn or rebellious way is is just inconsistent. And John displays that here. He exposes that as a falsehood. We have an example of this sort of in the sun, the light we have, the brightest light we have in our natural world. The, The sun gives light and it gives heat. Now, my mother was of Irish descent, and so she had a a fair complexion. If she were to go to the beach and say, I spent a week at the beach, and she came back, and she still had this fair complexion, I I would say, you must use a lot of sunscreen. Because the sun has the effects of light, but also of heat and of sunburn. And if she said no, I would think there's something inconsistent there. And in the same way, as God is the light of truth, his Being is the light of of holiness and godliness. So that someone affected by the life of Christ in a saving way, they too are affected. They are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the reasons I thought it was helpful to have this passage of Abraham, often in the church we lift up Abraham as a father of faith, and that's true, but we start to make him sort of a, 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 a little god of some sort. But what's so important is that Abraham himself, too, was taken out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That he was was transferred by an effectual calling of God out of his idolatry. The Old Testament testifies that he was an idolater, too. And slowly over time, as God reveals himself to him, he grows in faith, even to the point of being willing and ready to sacrifice his son at the word of God. Until God says stop. And so what John is saying is there cannot be this inconsistency. There were those at that time who, who made the claim that they walked with God or knew God. And yet they were contrary. They were not being faithful to the word of God itself. And so John is exposing this error. 
this pre-Gnosticism of sorts, with a special knowledge that they knew God, and yet it was the true knowledge that John has said is what leads us to faith and to, and to, and to uh, salvation in Christ. We get, it a, we get a, an idea of what it's like before the work of God starts to beginning someone's life. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and the mind, and were by nature's children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is the backdrop of our world. That is, the, that is the, what the world we live in, that God comes and draws people out of darkness into his marvelous light all across the history of redemption and their timing by his great power, by his word. The Apostle Peter speaks of this too in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, meaning those who would come out of darkness into his marvelous light, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. They both speak of that transformation of the kingdom of darkness and a gropingness of of those who walk in darkness, but who by the spirit of God have been pulled out and brought into his marvelous life by effectual calling. The bottom line is that those who have truly have fellowship with the Father and the Son are so affected by the power of God that they become like him. They become holy. They become transformed, increasing measure over the course of their lifetime by the Spirit of God. In the shorter catechism, question 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. This is the initiation. This is the bringing in by God's grace where he brings a dead sinner into life with himself, into fellowship with himself by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. Question 32 says, what benefits... Do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification. And the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. In question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This sanctification, there is an initial or definitive sanctification when one comes to Christ through the effectual calling. And yet from that time on until the Lord takes them home, they're on a course of progressive sanctification. Just like a child when it's born is not all that it will be. It must be trained and nurtured. The same way that one who has been born of the Spirit and brought into the kingdom by the power of God must continue to grow in that light to become more like Christ through the means of grace, particularly the reading and the preaching of the word of God, that those means are sufficient to transform somebody in that way. And so there has to be 
some likeness to Christ if you're Christ's. It's not perfection yet. There'll be a day, there will be perfection. I think of Jenny's dad, that the moment that God took him, he was perfected, waiting for his, his resurrected body, for the culmination of all things. Some of you, uh, Paul rightly said, I live in Bowie, but for the last seven months, I've lived in Howard County. <laughs> What's going on there? Well, my mother-in-law, who's 100 years and eight months old, lives with my sister-in-law, my wife's only sibling. And we have spent all this time uh, over the last seven months, at least, my wife even longer, my mother-in-law who's in hospice, taking care of her and watching her deterioration and seeing the, the confusion and chaos that, that sin, the fall, the corruption of the physical world has brought upon her. And she's a believer. She's a member of good standing at a PCA church in Chesapeake Presbytery. And yet she is so disoriented. She doesn't know who her daughters are. She's lived in Kentucky and three different places in Maryland. And at any time, she could be in any one of those places. And at one time, this was many years ago, before it was cruel to bring her to my house to make it even more disoriented, she was sitting watching the morning news, and I'm looking at her, and she would ask me these same questions over and over. And as that was going on, it dawned on me, this is the effects of the fall. Remember in John 9, the apostles say, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or his parents' sin? He says, neither. Jesus wasn't saying that this man wasn't a sinner. He was just saying that that's, that's not why he's blind. It was part of the fall. And that there would be a great work that would be done in him that would demonstrate the power of Christ. And so I thought about my mother-in-law, the great confusion You know, just the maddening confusion and at times her exasperation with it. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. And I'm thinking, Lord, what is the point of this? I'm sitting and saying that in some sense. I say, Lord, but but it dawned on me. This is what Christ came into the world for. This is just the, the natural, physical disintegration of mankind because of the fall. We're not even getting into the eternal wrath that she would bear upon herself if she didn't have a Savior. And my heart was so warmed, I thought, Lord, you are so kind. As my patience was wearing out, I think I had a paper due in seminary. And she's asking me the same question. I'm like, oh. And afterwards, I, almost, I think I wept. I said, Lord, you're so kind. I should have been kind all along. But I'm a sinner. You know, like Moses. Moses had lost it with Israel. And he struck the rock twice. And he was forbidden to enter the promised land. The physical promised land. And so we're always to treat God holy, but, but it was very helpful for me to see that, to see that um, the death at work in the world. And I've not been a stranger to death. My mom died when I was six, leaving a two-year-old sister behind me, a one-year-old sister, and a five-month-old brother. It's not like it's foreign. But to see that my mother-in-law worked out and to think when the Lord calls her All of that darkness, all of that confusion will be the clearest she's ever thought in her whole life, her whole existence. And she will see the Lord himself as she waits for her resurrected body. So this is an amazing thing that Christ has done on our behalf. But as we get to the, but there's one last point here. We can talk more maybe in discipleship time. 
It seems like many in the Christian church are confused about this idea of holiness. It's obvious that God calls us to holiness. But I think sometimes there's this temptation to think of it as an odious thing. When it's a beautiful thing. It's being conformed to the image of God. It's being conformed to his son. And when you start to press the bounds of, oh, we need to obey God. Oh, we don't want to be legalistic. And there's a great misunderstanding. It's spelled out pretty clear in Ephesians 1. That God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy. This is our birthright in Christ. This is our privilege. It's a glorious thing. And this is something that will go on all throughout our life if we're being sanctified. I hope next year, Lord willing, I'll celebrate my 50th anniversary as a believer. I'm almost embarrassed to say that. There ought to be a more beautiful trophy of grace standing before your eyes. But I know that I'm not the person I was. The things I thought were funny, that were odious to God, I don't think they're funny anymore. And it's helpful for us to look back and to look at the changes. Why are we here this morning? Think about your past. Maybe some of you grew up in Christian homes. I didn't. And here you are with the people of God wanting to hear his word, wanting to glorify him, and hopefully wanting to enjoy him. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing work of grace. But I expect that to my last breath, I'll be being sanctified. I've seen this primarily in my marriage. I, you know, I hope I wanted to be a good husband. But as time goes on, I say, oh, wow, you really come up short here, Steve. And now it's my delight to proactively love my wife, to be considerate of her, to think about how can I best serve her? How can I best care for her? Whether it might be uh, the provision of something that's helpful, particularly more means of grace, or of having to say, I think you're wrong. (laughs) Blessed are the wounds of a friend. So my point is, is that this sanctification makes us more aware of our sins. And I'll just end on this note. I remember the old diagram from John Flavel, or Flavel, I don't know how to pronounce his way. The two inverted triangles. If you can think of a triangle going like this as you go from left to right, that when we come to Christ, our idea of sin is, is very small and very inaccurate. We have some idea, but as we grow in the Christian life, it becomes magnified, and we see it more clearly. We see that it's not just Actions or just words or not just deeds, but it's affections. Affections are being sanctified by the Spirit. I think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll get there in a moment. He had no sinful affections. His, his will in the Father's was perfectly synchronized. But in Flavel's diagram, he also says there's another triangle that is this why this is If I get this right now, let me think. This is our knowledge of sin. No, I'm sorry. Well, it's it's opposite. (laughs) It's been a while since I pulled this out of my memory. But but we actually, I know it. So the the other triangle, so this one is our our knowledge of sin, and then it becomes more greater. But then there's this one, as far as obedience, our obedience is, is not very good, but it becomes more and more in line with the word of God. That's our hope, that he will finish the work. And he said he will. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're thinking, I am struggling against sin. I am, 
I am wrestling with sin, and yet I, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a great humility in that position. And yet at the same time, our hope is magnified. It's just like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, where they despaired of life itself, that they might not trust in themselves, but in him who raises the dead. That's, that's the whole Christian life, this constant process. We see our inadequacy, and yet we don't despair, as our brother Paul said. Because we see Christ and his faithfulness. And that his truthfulness of his word, that he will finish what he has begun. He will finish it. Even in spite of ourselves, because he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The last point, and I'll try to be more brief. So we have a fellowship of reality, a a fellowship of light or holiness, and finally a fellowship of great cost. Verses uh, chapter 2, 1 to 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two verses that say so much. We have a, a fellowship that came with great cost. As I've said, I've been a believer almost 50 years, and throughout that time you hear little slogans about what it means to be in a Christian life. And this is one about unconditional love, unconditional love, unconditional love. Well, that's, there's a nuance there, a very important nuance. God's love to us in Christ is free, but it came at great cost. We would have no hope if the Father did not send the Son, and the Son did not say, I will go. And I will be the payment for my people. If there wasn't that unity of purpose and then the execution of it, we would have no hope. And so when we think about unconditional love, we need to tweak that. We need to think about, oh, it came at a great cost. It came at a great condition. It came at the Son of God who was with the Father in glorious fellowship, coming, taking on human flesh, taking on a human body, That he might be the sacrifice that would pay for our sins and appease the wrath of God. They're not in disjunction in their purposes. They work it all together. I know that Jesus in the garden said, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will be done. He was was the God-man. He was fully God and fully man. And when he had a sense of what he was about to face, it was a great horror. But he loved the Father and his love for the Father was the, was the overruling principle. And he went to the cross. And he goes in his last breath. He's still faithful to the Father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, and it seems like just up until that moment, for the first time in his life, he did not enjoy that perfect fellowship with the Father. That perfect love that he experienced in heaven now is the God-man for that moment. As he who had no sin was our sin and took on human flesh and was our payment, the Father turns his face away. When I was younger, we used to stop school and watch the space program, the Mercury program, the Gemini program, the Apollo program. And there was these times where they would lose contact with these people millions of miles away. I'm like, man. That is scary. What if things don't go well? 
But that doesn't even compare to what Jesus is born on our behalf, that we might never experience that ourselves. It came at great cost. I don't think the father was dry and dull when he saw his son on the cross, when he became sin for us. He had great love for his son. If, if there's a sense in which you could say it enhanced his love or it, 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 it invoked his love more or something as, as he did this. But he didn't stay in the grave. <laughs> he rose from the dead because the grave could not hold him. But he, had a, he came to accomplish that purpose, that purpose of his hour, where he bore our sins on the cross so that those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world might never experience that separation. And so that's why, as John talks about this fellowship, not only with him and the apostles, but also with the Father and the Son, that that's what we're joined into in Christ. That one day it will be perfected. There will be no more sin, no more tears, no more sorrow. And we'll fully enjoy the bliss of that fellowship. If you're a Christian, I'm sure you've experienced some taste of it here. Not the full-blown taste, but some measure of it. Some measure of that fellowship that he has purchased with his own blood for us. And so we have great anticipation and great hope as we look for that day when we put off this body or our Lord comes. And we'll have that fellowship without any blemish anymore. No, no blindness, no confusion, just absolute purity in our enjoyment of God for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word always does two things. It brings to light who we are and it brings to light uh, who you are. And so, Father, as we consider these words, I ask that you would be pleased to transform us as Paul has already asked. Father, we, as your people, do not want to hide our sins apart from your, by your grace. We would have them exposed just like we would want any disease in our bodies to be exposed, that it might be treated properly. We thank you that we are your, your children by your grace in Christ, and yet even as your children, you lead us into greater and greater light. We see our sins for what they are, and yet at the same time, by the Holy Spirit, we see Christ, that Christ has paid for them, that they've been atoned for, that this does not destroy our relationship with you, but it sanctifies it. Help us not to balk or to be stubborn when we're convicted by our sins. But as John says, that we would confess them and be cleansed and that the righteousness of Christ would be more manifested in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.